Buddha taught this gradual path of awakening. And it begins in a really simple and pragmatic way that I mentioned last night. So it doesn't, we don't have to be anything other than what we are, you know, somebody who wants to be happy, just a creature that wants to be happy, that wants to be safe, and not so overwhelmed that we can't bring a kind of curiosity to to how to be happy, how to be safe. We call this application of the mind, you know, putting our heart and mind into this basic question of happiness. We kind of think we're doing that already, you know, applying ourselves to the issue of happiness. But uh, the trouble is that so much remains unquestioned. We have this arrogance. We kind of think we already know what leads to happiness and what leads away from happiness. Like people liking me, that leads to happiness. People not liking me, that's a problem. So I mentioned uh, the, in the tradition, it's called they're called the three bases of meritor- meritorious action, or the what qualities of mind, what activities of mind actually create merit in the sense of happiness, set happiness in motion. And so, interestingly, it's not about like getting out there and making a lot of money. It's about cultivating dana, generosity, sila, this beautiful commitment to non-harming, this integrity around not harming, not contributing to harm, and developing the heart stabilizing the heart and mind, clarifying, strengthening the mind so it can do the one thing that we want the mind to do, the heart to do, see things as they are, or understand deeply. And again, this isn't... The Buddha at this point, at this level of the teachings, he's not talking... He's just talking about an ordinary person who wants to be happy. Dana, sila, bhavana. This is something you... You know, every child growing up in a Buddhist culture would learn. Another way this is said in the tradition, like summarizing the Buddhist teachings, cultivate what is good, that's the dana, right? Cultivate a generous heart, a generous spirit. Refrain from the bad, that's sila, like being really sensitive, (coughs) excuse me, to what might set emotion suffering for ourselves and others and refrain from that and develop the heart. Cultivate the good, refrain from the unwholesome and develop the mind, develop the heart. So if anybody asks you what you did this week, Mm -hmm. cultivated the good, refrain from doing the bad and develop the mind, develop the heart. 
People won't argue with that. I mean, can you imagine saying the opposite, you know? Instead of cultivating the good, cultivated the bad, you know, and abandoned the good and neglected the mind, just lived out our habit energies, did what we always do with the mind. I mean, that's what we do a lot of the times and we have a lot of evidence it doesn't work. I mean, just something like I mentioned last night, like stinginess, really doesn't work. I mean, do we know from our own experience or from observing others, anybody who's been miserly and happy, stingy and happy, or anybody who's been totally okay about acting out their ill will, their hate, and that that somehow led to their happiness and well-being. I mean, we have so many obvious examples that it doesn't work in our own life, but also in observing others. It's the one good thing about the news, right? It reveals, it can, if we have the right eye as we're reading it or looking at it, it can reveal the lawful nature of karma when wholesome qualities are cultivated well-being and goodness comes when unwholesome qualities, I mean, it's almost by definition, unwholesome qualities are those qualities of the mind that are painful, that are weightful. So this is the basic, you know, the first level of wisdom is just understanding, just moving from uh, the habit of helplessness around what leads to happiness to almost like uh, embodying from our own experience that happiness, like everything else, is lawful. There are qualities of mind, ways of being that lead to stress and difficulties and suffering. And there are qualities of mind, ways of being, ways of relating that lead to happiness. And even from the very start, like even though I, I may not be any good at cultivating the causes for happiness and I'm really good at cultivating the causes for unhappiness, just knowing, just having some confidence that I exist in a lawful universe where happiness can be cultivated or suffering can be cultivated. Just that sense of responsibility instead of helplessness. I'm doomed, my fate, the world is bad. Because all a lot of the times when we make the choice that doesn't lead to happiness and we decide to eat, you know, the third bowl of ice cream or watch the fourth hour of some, you know, binging on some TV program or any other many ways that we live and, you know, make unproductive choices. A lot of that kind of digging the hole deeper is because in those moments, the mind isn't 
have confidence that positive seeds that actually unavoidably lead to happiness, the mind doesn't have any confidence that there are those seeds and that they can be planted. So we just justify planting seeds that if we were at all reflective, we would know are not going to lead to any kind of lasting happiness. They might provide a little juiciness for an hour or so. But generally, you know, getting less bang for the buck as the hours go by or the bowls of our favorite food go by, you know, we get less and less from it. We get more and more desperate for something that will be entertaining. So interesting to watch my mind looking at the news, looking for stimulation. Or looking in the fridge, looking for happiness in the fridge. Or for my partner too, you know, like wanting some interaction that will be entertaining or delightful. You know, kind of putting that on the relationship or on the other person. I'm bored. I I want you to make me happy. I want you to make my life meaningful or interesting now. (laughs) I mean, even I see that I see that happening in my relationship with my cat, too. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's that basic idea that the world, whatever the world looks like, like this retreat, is here to make me happy. So get with it. And it's a real setup. So this dana sila bhavana, really investing in a generous heart, planting seeds, moving in the direction of generosity, generosity of spirit, an inner sense of abundance. Remember, generosity isn't measured by how much money you give. Generosity is, if you're going to measure it, if you're going to sort of assess, it's noticing in moments whether there's a sense of abundance. Like, you have something to contribute to this moment. You can, you're bringing something to this moment, this moment, not later. Right? Your, your relationship to this moment is a relationship of generosity instead of you're trying to get something from this moment. So like even in terms of the talk, like what would a generous way of being in a room where someone's giving a talk like appreciation, I'm not saying you have to appreciate the talk, but <laughs> that would be an example, like to be appreciative, like even if the talk's not helpful, but appreciating the effort, right? Or appreciating that you don't need the talk. But just the spirit of appreciation, finding something to appreciate, that you can tolerate it, <laughs> that you have the strength of mind to sit and outlast it. (laughs) But there's many ways to be in the room in a stingy way, cultivating stinginess, neediness, dependency. Same thing with sila. We can actively cultivate this commitment to non-harming. 
just how we put our clothes on, is it like gentle and kind? Are we doing it full of care? Or when we eat, or when we sit and listen to the body and find a posture that's going to be okay for the body? You know, are we being mean? Or are we being gentle? Are we being kind? Or are we being impatient? Rough with ourselves or distracted. One of the, for for nice people like ourselves, right, because we're the nice people, <laughs> you know, the ways that we cause harm, it isn't that we often probably are intentionally going out and hitting somebody or even using our words on purpose to harm somebody. But probably, if you're like me, we do cause harm through lack of attention. Presuming that I'm already not causing harm so I don't need to pay attention. Presuming that there's no way that we're participating or that we're complicit in systems that are oppressive or that are causing harm. So this this sort of path of generosity, this path of sila, developing this commitment to non-harming and to developing the heart, strengthening the heart, it's like, we can always plant seeds. It's not about like, okay, I've done that. I'm done with generosity. I'm already a generous person. I'm already committed to non-harming. I've already developed my mind. I guess there's nothing to do. It's like there's always more we can put in the bank. And then it's just interesting, like, you know, in these nine days, can we make ourselves really happy? I mean, it really is kind of shocking that as human beings, we haven't sort of... And I think it's because we don't believe in it. We, we somehow more often, more deeply believe in helplessness. That somehow happiness is not something that I get to control or that I get to participate in. It's random or it's, you know, who knows what what the underlying unconscious beliefs that we have around. <coughs> I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, there were like contests who could make themselves the happiest and the loser gets the car. <laughs> Because the the winner, but they've already made themselves really happy. <laughs> I mean, it'd be interesting. Like, I don't know if they still do this, but back when I was in elementary school, you know, the end of the year, the teachers would give prizes to some students. You know, best attendance best leadership skills, you know, these sort of things. Maybe some of you have that same sort of system. But, you know, it'd be like student best able to cultivate happiness. 
understanding the lawfulness of happiness, how not to feed unhappiness, how to feed happiness. I mean, nowadays, there, you know, it's, it's kind of become part of Western psychology, this science and art of happiness. <coughs> so mostly tonight I'd like to talk about this third piece, because last yesterday and, and then just now I've been talking about the spirit of generosity and this beautiful, enlivening, liberating commitment to non-harming, to really caring about life, this life, that life, the mosquitoes' lives. And it's just interesting because it shocks us a little that really being generous will make me happy because it can feel like initially oppressive to be committed to non-harming, to be orienting in a generous way. So we really have to check it out. And then the third and ultimately much uh, most potent cause for happiness is bhavana, it's the Pali word. And it means, uh, sometimes it's translated as uh, cultivation or even meditation. Often when you see the word meditation translated, they're translating the word bhavana. But they're not talking about sitting meditation, although that's one posture that you can develop or cultivate the mind. But you can do it all day, we can do it all day long. I mean, that's the idea. There's even dream yoga. Some people can do it in their dreams, lucid dreaming. But for us mere mortals, we'll just do it, you know, the 18 hours we're awake or whatever it is, cultivating the mind. And it's like anything, like developing your body or developing a craft. Some of you maybe are really good musicians or really good artists or really good writers or... You know, you've developed some skill over the years and you applied your mind to the task at hand, to the development of the skills, and then you got good to the degree you were consistent, you persisted. And it's the same in terms of developing the heart and mind. We're developing the stability of present moment awareness. The kind of awareness that doesn't reflexively or just by habit fall into distraction. The image that I like that Joseph Goldstein used to use a lot in his teaching was uh, he would start off by saying that our mind is like an upside down bowl, like a perfectly rounded bowl, but it's upside down and we're training the mind to be mindful, so that's like putting a little marble right at the top of the bowl, and it immediately rolls off the bowl, off the table, and under the couch where we can't find it. Right? Until three months later when we're doing some deep cleaning, we find it, and we put the marble back on top of the upside-down bowl, and it immediately rolls off, and this time you know, it goes down the heating vent. 
and then we won't find it for a couple decades when we replace the ductwork. And we put it, you know, so basically not much mindfulness. But, you know, we get persistent and it rolls off and we catch it and we put it back and, you know, we keep. And eventually the bowl inverts and now it's the right side up. The marble still gets pushed around, but now it has a natural tendency to come back to the center, come back to the present moment. And this is the muscle, this is the mental development, the bhavana. We're developing this value of present moment awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness. That's mostly why we're here on this retreat. I mean, all the other activities and teachings really are in the service of this continuity of present moment awareness. Some of you know Steve Armstrong. The way he talks about this is remembering to recognize the present moment. We're developing that muscle that remembers to recognize, oh, this is being known. It's like this now. It's it's not a hard move, right? It's like this now. Not the words, but what that those words point to. The experience of the mind and body that's being known. Because the awareness is already here. But we're not remembering to recognize what's being known. Knowing might be happening, but we haven't developed that muscle to remember to recognize what's being known. And that's a good definition of bhavana, the development of the heart. And it turns out to make all the difference. I mean, on on a very simple level, it's really unpleasant to notice our mind when it's seeking some ground like it needs something to absorb into, some meaning, some project, some story. But developing this muscle, developing mindfulness, present moment awareness, it becomes the default resting zone for the mind. This is, it becomes that default place for the mind to be at rest in the present moment, to be remembering to recognize it's like this. And the reason that such a useful image, the one that Joseph used about the bowl inverting, because at some point when there's enough momentum, it's defined, the momentum is defined by there being systems or tendencies in place that will continue the development without there being a meditator or a mark doing the work. So we call that effortlessness, right? Where the mind's mindful, the mind knows that it's mindful, and the mind is 
that knowing that the mind is mindful, that appreciation of the value of mindfulness, valuing mindfulness itself, that's what is strengthening the mindfulness. It's like a feedback mechanism. And the mind is also realizing that there's nobody doing this, that this strengthening of mindfulness is nature itself. And that's, that's when we say the mind is developed, right? When the, there's enough feedback mechanisms that the path, the practice, the sense of being the practitioner, all of that is already in motion. We're just trusting it. Trusting what's already in motion. There's um, a great discourse, I won't review the whole talk the Buddha gave, but this one piece is really nice, where he's talking about when the mind's in that place, the practice is like observing cows when you don't have to be concerned about where they wander to. Because the farmers have harvested all the crops, and now you don't need to keep the cows off of the fields and on the narrow paths. They're able, they're, in fact, the farmers want the cows to go through the fields and eat whatever plants remain and poop all around, right? So the herder, the cow herder, just sits under a shade tree knowing that the cows are there. Whereas other times of the year when you have to be really careful, you have to work very hard to keep those cows from doing something that you're going to get punished. So that's sort of what we're looking for with this bhavana. And you might have moments, hopefully you will have moments on this retreat, maybe even today, you had some moments where there just felt like there was some momentum, some continuity, in a sense that you, as the practitioner, didn't have to work hard to keep the continuity going. It can be troublesome, actually, to just trust the momentum of mindfulness. It can be troublesome or challenging to not be the meditator, neurotically needing to do something. Come on, let me do some dharma move. Let me try hard. Mm And all it does is it's sort of, I mean, if, the, if there's enough momentum, then the wisdom just sees, well, that's just the neurotic Dharma coach not able to shut up, you know, and it's like this, it feels like this. And if there's not enough momentum, then we lose the momentum, right? We identify with the Dharma coach or we identify with the Dharma coach that's critical of the Dharma coach, can't you shut up? You're not needed now, right? And feel like we have to do a Dharma move to get rid of the neurotic doing instead of just include the doing. Oh, the doing mind, the practicing mind is like this now. Trying, you know, sometimes I I never made it to Boy Scouts, but I was a Cub Scout. You know, that sort of can-do attitude that at least back in the day when I was in Cub Scouts in the 60s, you know, it's like, 
that spirit like, yeah, I'll do it. Let's do it. Let's do this thing. And that's actually very helpful until it's not helpful. Right? It's like I talked about medicine, spiritual medicine. What kind of effort is useful now? What kind of attitude of mind might be useful? What way of working with the heart and mind is useful now? What kind of intervention would be skillful now? Forgiveness, turning the attention to something neutral, being curious about the physical pain. Right? There are many options. But sometimes what's actually skillful is kind of that hands-off or just trusting. The awareness is already here. Wisdom is already comprehending. It's like this now. So the, what wisdom does is it refrains. It's it, in, a, in a gentle way, it refrains from acting like the meditator. I was in a retreat once with a Tibetan teacher, this is a long time ago, and, and the teacher in the middle of the sit, pretty loudly, I don't know if I'd call it a yell, but it was pretty loud, stop meditating! <laughs> I don't know if he was psychic or what, but he probably just sensed that people were trying to be good, you know, that Cub Scout mentality, like be good <laughs> meditators. Do it right. So I mentioned this morning, and uh, it'd be nice to just keep coming back to this very simple formulation of the three things, like in developing momentum, really keep it to these three things. And sometimes our relationship to these three strategies will be quite gross, like we might be really demanding about relaxation, that's the first, right? I mean it. You really need to relax. I mean, sometimes we need that. You know, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to take you into your room. You're going to lie down and meditate so you get a sense of what it is to just relax. Right? Or you're going to sit outside on a chair by the lake and you're going to listen to the birds. Because sometimes we need a heavy hand around relaxation. Right? Like... I'm sick and tired of being tight. And sometimes we're already relaxed. And so just appreciating just appreciating the the release in the body and the calm in the mind, just appreciating the relaxation that's already there is enough. It doesn't need a a gross move, Dharma move to kind of and the same thing with interest or curiosity, the second step, right? So we have these three steps, relaxation, interest, alertness, curiosity, and bringing in right or bringing in wise view, bringing in the wisdom teachings. Bringing in some information that challenges the ways we normally construct meaning. Like, right now, we could bring in, I'll just give an example of this third instruction, right? 
because because uh, we're not like in the middle of a set or in the middle of walking meditation, it might you know we might feel like we're really here in the room listening to Mark give a talk. And so then it might be really useful right now to just practice bringing in wise view. Like whatever this is that's happening, your subjective experience, it's a lawful, natural unfolding, right? So what is it to tune in to like, maybe because I'm talking about all of us now, there's a little self-consciousness, but whatever it is, you know, maybe it can be seen as just a natural process. Whatever it is we're thinking, feeling, seeing, hearing, just a dance of causes and conditions that are related, that are affecting everything interdependent, affecting each other. But isn't it possible, it may take a little work, but isn't it possible for us to practice understanding or you could use the word interpreting or perceiving this experience, my subjective experience, your subjective experience, as a natural process, an impersonal process. And so even if something's going on internally that is like a personal reaction to what I'm saying, that can also be recognized as, well, of course, that's exactly what would happen in this kind of situation. That is a natural lawful arising that you would think oh that's stupid Mark what are you talking about or that's really cool Mark I'm really into this or the Buddha was really right but whatever response whatever reaction whatever the mind is or isn't doing with some effort the right effort we can strategically and over time skillfully bring in wise view that's one of our tasks, to develop the mind. And a lot of wise view is basically interrupting wrong view, <laughs> self-view, right? So it's not so much a philosophical view that we're going to like really get, master, get our PhD in wise view, the Buddha's view. But what we're going to do is we can the mind's unconscious dependence on wrong view, always interpreting, perceiving things in terms of self and other. Me here, world out there, in terms of my likes and dislikes, because that's the chronic way of viewing, way of relating, way of perceiving. And the Buddha says it's really good to challenge that. So here are some ideas, concepts, that you can use skillfully to challenge, to kind of loosen up. Excuse me. So we have these three things. We need to gain this array of skill around relaxation. Sometimes we need a more heavy-handed approach when we're really attached to being tight. We have to sort of grab ourselves, you know, with a, this part of the shirt. Honey, do you see what you're doing? Do you really want to be tight for the rest of your life? Take off the backpack, put it down. 
It's like uh, recognizing the armor. Do I really need to walk around with this much armor on? One of the nice things about noble silence, not having to talk, is that especially when we're in a group of new people, it's like we feel personally responsible for making sure everybody gets our story right. I want you to know who I am. And I don't want, I'm not, I'm not willing to accept that you might have the wrong interpretation of who I am. You know, we have all these sort of subtle ways of conveying to each other, you know, over the course of nine days, if we were sitting in different places for the meals, we'd eventually sit with everybody, you know, and hang out, take walks together. And it would be this stressful thing. I mean, there'd be some fun times too, I'm sure. Just how that's, that's part of that self-view is like, you want me, mostly unconsciously, to confirm your view of yourself, just like I want you to confirm my view. And in this way, we're complicit. So with noble silence, we don't really have the avenues to do that. That's why noble silence, or sometimes even better, being completely by yourself for a period of time, where you don't really have human interactions and no mirrors. It's very interesting to be kind of in that secluded environment for a while, because so much of self-view depends on bouncing off of other selves. And even though we can kind of do it alone with you know our own inner narration, it starts to stand out and get tiring after a few days. So when you feel like it's the right thing, you might explore some version of a self-retreat or a relatively secluded place where you don't not interacting too much with others. You could just start with a half a day at home when the people you live with aren't there or using somebody's cabin or something like that and then extend it, build up. And you see this wise view, it really feeds right back into relaxation and to interest, right? So these are the three things we're remembering all day long, 18 hours or so a day. Honey, it's okay to relax. And this one's really interesting how, um, like finding a kind of persistence around being interested because we have a lot of arrogant certainty that this moment is not interesting. And it's a real cause for suffering. It basically justifies living our life in a disconnected way. Because the strong presumption, arrogant presumption is, I don't know much, but this isn't it. (laughs) This is not the moment I'm looking for. This is not the moment I want. Isn't that right? Most of our moments are like that. And then we get really good at that arrogant presumption that this isn't it. So that's what dominates the mind. Always expecting the moment, but always presuming it's not this moment. 
And so it gets this to be this chronic habit of not being disinterested. So what we call that normally is we're distracted or we're disconnected. That's how we live. So we need to be interested in what it means to be interested because we're not good at it. We don't even know. It's like, uh, can you imagine walking in the peninsula? I don't know if you've checked out the nice, pretty mature woods over there. Um, And let's say you just stumbled and saw a little bear cub, you know. I mean, imagine like just seeing that bear cub sort of doing, maybe messing around with another bear cub, two bear cubs doing silly stuff together, you know, something you'd never seen before, maybe out in the wild or relative wild. And uh, like the interest, like everything else would drop away. You wouldn't be worried about what our president might have said or what's happening at home with your family or, you know, your back pain. The mind would really collect itself. The body might even relax a little bit. It's like, I don't even have the wherewithal to get tight. I'm so wrapped in this scene that we leave the body alone. Can, I mean, it just depends. And then it could be like, then there might be a wave of fear, like, I wonder if the mother's around. Or a wave of greed, wait till I tell my friends, they're not going to believe this. Right? And then, it's great, because then we see how that, that unity, the collectedness of the mind that was there, then gets broken. All of a sudden, we're a person having a special experience. And there's the experience, and there's the person having the experience, and there's these other people that will have this interaction about me having had this amazing experience, or mother that maybe I need to move further away. And Because you'll have some experiences, maybe not that interesting, but there will be moments that will be relatively interesting like maybe when the wind was blowing a little more this afternoon, the weather was shifting, if you were outside, that's sort of engaging for the mind. And then really look, be interested in the natural interest. Because you're not going to be able to replicate the interesting weather, but you can take advantage of the interesting weather to be interested in the mind that's interested interested in the mind that's naturally alert, naturally curious, naturally receptive, naturally valuing that this moment matters. This moment is worthy of being present with. Because we can get to know that mind so we know what it's like when the mind is interested. Then it's easier to find it even when Uh, the conditions are more ordinary. Oatmeal again. Mm. Leslie, oh, you're back. (laughs) Leslie had to go get some oatmeal. So we can have it in the morning. 
Yeah, so we're eating the oatmeal, but I mean, moments, like is there, I mean, this is, right, this moment right now, this is the entirety of our life right now. There's no past, it's completely gone, future is completely not here yet, this is it. It kind of makes us interested. And even this moment, this talk, this being together for this period of time, it's like sand through the fingers, right? It's will be 8.30 before long. Whatever this was, interesting or boring, will be done, gone. And another thing around interest is it is possible to be very interested in boredom or very interested in how the mind is dismissive. I'm getting better at catching that like uh, there are certain institutional places that uh, I find unappealing. This building is sort of one of them. It's so much better since uh, the... Triple Gem of the North purchased this about a year ago. And there's, just because the Franciscans, who were lovely, lovely, wonderful people, but they had collected a lot of sort of kitschy stuff, um, kind of Christian art and other sort of stuff over the decades that they were here. So it was very cluttered. And for someone with this kind of mind, not I wasn't interested in the kind of artwork and objects that were around the place. So they've really gotten rid of a lot of stuff over the last year, so it's more simple. But I notice when I'm in places that aren't interesting to me, institutional places or uh, in the city, you know, walking, like I often walk between my house and where Common Ground is, and some of the houses are really unkept, and the lawns and the gardens are just a mess, and I notice I don't want to be interested. Like, I'm starting to get interested in not being interested. I notice that I catch it all the time now with my wife. I'm recording this talk. <laughs> but it's, it's just interesting. It's humiliating, actually, to be in conversation with someone and then to see very clearly the mind not being interested. And I've trained myself like not to force myself to be interested or to pretend to be interested, but rather just to stay interested in being not interested. Right? Because that tends to be most useful, it seems. I'm, I still feel like I'm a beginner here. But this is what I'm inviting us to do on the retreat. With all three of these, there's subjects to study. And don't feel like you've got to study all three. Just choose whatever one seems most relevant to you, the relaxation. And just do everything we normally do when we're on retreat, but you're really bringing your heart to learning something new. Like in this sit, I want to learn a few things new about relaxation and tension, or about interest and disinterest about wise view, bringing, using the information from the Buddhist teachings and kind of bringing it to bear on how the mind 
is perceiving, how the mind is understanding, how the mind is relating. And and generally, around wise view, it's self-view versus seeing it as nature, seeing things as a natural process. I mean, if you want to put language, it's more subtle than that or more complex than that. But that sort of captures it. Like, how is the mind relating? Taking things as I, me, or mine, self-view, seeing things as a natural process. So we use some words. All three, you're going to use some words. There's a big part of our practice that's contemplating, having a theme in mind. There are many themes in Buddhism, you know, but this isn't, you know, as a theme... We're not using impermanence as a theme. You can. You know, you don't have to follow the theme that I'm offering. But I'm offering this theme of relaxation, interest, and wise view. To play with these three things 18 hours a day. Walking time, sitting time, transition times, lying on your bed times. What can I learn about relaxation putting down unnecessary load, softening, being undefended, being open. What can I learn about interest, actual, that sort of gathering of the mind, like the whole mind values, connecting, receiving the moment, understanding, comprehending, that receptive-like. This moment matters. I don't, I no longer trust being disconnected. This is from Saito Utejaniya. He says, I would like yogis to get to the point where they realize that without focusing or paying attention, the nature of knowing is happening. They are too busy thinking they are practicing. They need to step back in order to see what is happening. They need to switch from doing to recognizing. Yeah, so there's really this important thing about being a student. And I mentioned last night the, you know, the important place of humility. That's more important, and to really be on the lookout for imitating being a yogi, being a retreatant, a kind of going through the motions. And, and when you catch yourself just sort of going through the motions, then just ask, okay, there's relaxation, there's this experience of interest, non-distraction, and then there's the Buddhist pointing out instructions that everything is always a natural process. It doesn't refer back to anybody, to anything. Just causes and conditions. What is the mind inclined? What, what might be fun, enlivening, as I'm walking back and forth, as I'm sitting here, feeling the body as I breathe in, feeling the whole body as I breathe out. What theme 
might illuminate the present moment. I mean, generally, just working with relaxation for the first part of the sit or walking is often a good thing. Like just being really curious, like how much can be released? Is there anything that can be put down? Unnecessary holding. You can just scanning through the body. And you really see that, like, you know, part, they all feed back into each other. So that's why it doesn't really matter which theme you keep going back to, because you'll learn about the other two, like just pursuing relaxation. You know, like, you have to, to really take that on as a theme. You've got to get interested in tension and relaxation, right? And you'll start to notice as you become a better and better student at relaxing, you'll notice any selfing, like even, even taking the relaxation, relaxing personally is stressful. Like even making a personal project at getting good at relaxing is counterproductive, has to be abandoned because I'm interested in relaxation. So we'll learn about everything, whatever theme we take on. They feed back into each other. So much of what hinders us is this, as I mentioned, this, in Buddhism we call it ignorance, right? That's the only problem. But a more operational definition of ignorance is thinking that we know, because it closes off learning. There's no opening, there's no insight if we think we already know. That's why, and, um, you know, when we read all the stories about the earlier practitioners, it can, there's all, you know, there seems like a lot of stories about teachers cracking these hard nut of students, you know, that just like throwing them for a loop or just having to go through a lot of difficulties. A lot of my, you know, I've studied both with Asian teachers and uh, with a lot of the senior Western teachers and you know, they often talked about their months and years in Burma or Thailand practicing and how difficult it was. And But a lot of that intense stuff that we sometimes read about isn't so much about deeper insight as it is about tenderizing the heart from a mind that is sort of caught in its arrogant certainty to a mind that's ready to start learning. You know, but you don't have to go to Asia and deal with the humidity to get beaten up. <laughs> you know, because life tends to do a pretty good job at that. You know, being in relationship with other people, or trying to earn a living, or dealing with the other difficulties in life, raising a family, whatever it might be, it's not easy. And if we're if we're do it right, we can use the ordinary suffering in life 
uh, kind of erode the arrogant certainty. So we get to this place, I know with arrogant certainty that I don't know. <laughs> That's a joke. You know, we can have a lot of confidence, I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. It's interesting being in my role as a teacher, you know, because a lot of people check in with me about their practice. And, yeah, I really have learned to trust that humility and recognize the absence of humility in people. When people think they know, they might have had really deep experience, but they have closed themselves off from learning because they think they know. The mind they have selfed around whatever experience arose. We joke, and many of you have heard this joke, you know, there's a really good way to ruin a retreat or a one day on retreat. Have a good sit, right? Because then we self around that good sit that deep experience, that insight, or whatever happened to us, we make up a self-story, and then we spin endlessly. You know, want it back, want to, whatever. There's any number of ways to get caught. I'll just end with one more quote from Sayadaw. Utejaniya, this Burmese monk, he says, or he writes, let the mind and body do whatever they do naturally. It just needs to be seen, that's all. When you don't have clarity, never mind, just keep practicing. Just acknowledging there is not much clarity, that is right view. Let's just sit for a few moments, let go of the words. A few seconds of silence before the walking time. for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.